Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside. We are glad that you're here. And if it's your first time here, you're like, what in the world is going on with that video? There's some tension and awkwardness there, and that's the purpose. Um, that's what we've been exploring in this series called So This Is Christmas. In light of the division, death, and everything that's gone on in the world, we sort of just honestly said, so this is Christmas? Like now we're just supposed to stop do we not acknowledge? Do we acknowledge? What are we supposed to do in light of that? And, and just before we jump in, I want to say something about next Sunday. Um, next Sunday is the last Sunday in 2020, and 2020 has been a year. Um, for some of us, it's been actually a really good year. For those of you unicorns who that's like, we don't know who you are, but it's been a great year for somebody. I know it has to have been, but for a lot of people, it's been difficult and it's been hard. And so I think it's important, we're, we're going to be looking next Sunday about forgetting 2020 and pursuing 2021, and I think it's important to end 2020 worshiping Jesus and seeing what the Lord has for us, and then we're going to start the first Sunday in 2020 looking and pursuing with what the Lord has for us. So we would just lay that before you and ask you to just be praying and considering of that. But we've been in this series, So This Is Christmas, and we've asked that honest question, is this kind of what everything's been about and we've actually asked a really honest question. We've said this, um, why would God want to come here? Because when we talk about Christmas, one of the things we forget is we're actually, like when these kids were singing and reading scriptures, they were teaching some pretty profound doctrine. And we sort of lose sight of that in the pretty dresses and the hustle and bustle of the Christmas program. But the reality is, is we believe this time of year, um, as, as Christians, that God became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you think about that and look at all the brokenness in the world, the division, everything that's happened, it's sort of like, why would God come here? I mean, I'm all for going where God's at. Yes and amen, right? But why would God come here? And we've answered that each week. We said to reveal his glory, just like the Kidside Kids told us. And then last week, we looked at that Ancestry.com chapter in Matthew chapter 1, uh, the previous verses before that everybody skips in their Bible reading plan of all the names and mentions. And we said that Jesus Christ shows us in that lineage of broken families that Jesus doesn't just come from broken families, he comes for broken families as well. And a purpose was to restore his creation. 
And to set us up where we're going today, maybe this will be helpful. Maybe some of you know and maybe some of you don't, but um, actually in our newly remodeled offices, we had a fire um, a couple weeks ago. And thank goodness nobody was hurt. The damage was minimal. Thank goodness for a church member driving by on their lunch break, saw some smoke, and the first responders, the firefighters came. And shout out to the Popper Bluff uh, Fire Department. Those guys were fantastic, took care of everything. And when we got the call, we rushed up here, obviously didn't know what was going on. And when we got here, you know, they were doing their thing, the firefighters were. There was one firefighter that was, they kept asking, is anybody in the building? Is anybody in the building? Because they had to confirm. That's what firefighters do, right? Is they save people in burning buildings. We were like, no. And they had to check it. We couldn't get the door unlocked. So there was this one firefighter that just straight stone cold Steve Austin the front door and just kicked it open. And by the way, just full cards on the table, that firefighter was one of the most handsome men I've ever seen in my entire life. Listen, so much so, so much so that when they were getting my information and I turned to Courtney, I said, look how handsome that man is. Like he was in the full firefighter garb. I mean, it was incredible. It was awesome. And so as all of this is happening in their spring and it's just a just stressful moment, I sort of stepped back and thought, these guys, like their job is to go in to a burning building. Literally when everybody is running away they run in to a place. And I stepped back and as I saw the building on fire, I thought to myself that, that question, who would want to go in there? And then there are the firefighters, that their job is to literally rescue anybody that needs it. And when we ask this question, why would God want to come here? Our passage actually tells us that today. You see, there's a very interesting part in this verse that we sort of gloss over um, with the decorations and the lights and the eggnog and all of that stuff. In Matthew 121, it says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. I've seen this on a sweatshirt before, and they left off the rest of the verse. You know why? Because we have a problem with it. We struggle with the second part of the verse. It just doesn't fit into the Christmassy, holly jolly, merry, merry Christmas. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Merry Christmas. Right? You're like, well, that, I, don't, I don't know what to do with that. Well, we see that there's a huge purpose behind this. Why would God in Christ want to come here? We, we see that right there in the verse. And it's troubling for us. Save the people from their sins. And when I think about that, it puts a whole new sort of spin on Christmas, if you will. For, for many of us, Christmas is the celebration, as it should be. But listen to me. We as Christians believe that it's a celebration secondarily. It's not a celebration first. You know why? Well, here's the sentence. Before Christmas is a celebration... Christmas is a crisis. <laughs> There's something wrong. That's why he came. And we like to put it on sweatshirts and our Christmas cards and leave off the rest of the verse. I mean, think about it. You and your beautiful family on the front of the Christmas card and save them from their sins. It just doesn't feel right. But we see the purpose and the meaning behind it. 
is that there's actually a crisis. Do you know the definition of a crisis? When I looked it up, I was shocked. It's, it's absolutely what Christmas is. Before it's a celebration, Christmas is a crisis. The definition of a crisis is this, a stage in a sequence of events at which the trend of all future events, for better or for worse, is determined. That's a crisis. So when you think about Christmas, it was a stage and a sequence of events at which what we believe on this side of Christmas, that if Christ had not come, it absolutely would have been for worse. That Christmas, long before it's a celebration, it is a crisis. So we ask the question, why would God want to come here? And we answer it with this, to rescue his people. To rescue his people. Now, I need to preface this sermon, okay? If it's your first time here, welcome to Westside. We're glad you're here. Um, if you're a non-believer, welcome. We have many non-believers come and worship with us week in and week out. Our job is to love you. We want to love you, and we want you to know that the aim of our charge, as the Apostle Paul said, is love. And a part of that is also telling the truth, but doing it in a loving and gentle way. The first half of this sermon is going to be the absolute most unchristmassy message that you've probably ever heard in your life. And you're like, why? Well, because point number one is the question, what is sin? <laughs> okay? So, um, Merry Christmas! What is sin? Because when we look at that statement to rescue his people, that doesn't end the conversation. It should start a conversation. Because you're like, well, rescue his people from what? What says sins? Well, what are sins? This, that, and the other. And just for a few moments, I want you to hang with me. We're going to have to learn some things. God forbid we come to church and learn something. That would be mind-blowing, right? And then we're going to see why we as Christians believe this good news thing. Because this doesn't seem like good news. This seems like a crisis. Yes, there is a crisis, and then there is a celebration. And so if I were to ask you or survey the top ten answers as to what is sin, um, they would probably be answered with, well, it's doing bad stuff. A lot of bad things, you know. Or as we like to joke, maybe if you grew up with this, don't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do. That's all sin, okay, right? All of that stuff. The Bible uses a number of words in the Old Testament for sin and a number of words in the New Testament meaning missing the mark, a breach in a relationship, all of those things. But one of the things that we want to teach you at Westside is this, that we want the Bible to interpret the Bible. Okay, So as believers, I don't want you to go to Google. I want you to go to your Bible when you ask a question like this. And we know that there's an answer to that. 1 John says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That's pretty clear. But it also brings up um, a number of other questions as well. What is lawlessness? In the Greek language, for one of you who cares, it's the word antinomia, which means to cast off or disregard anything of God and His ways. So there's an early church doctrine heresy called antinomianism, Okay. Big words, so is mayonnaise, but we're learning some stuff. Lawlessness means to cast off or to reject anything involving God and His ways. Now, there's two types of people in this room. And here's what I mean by this. When you see this definition, unfortunately, in Popper Bluff, Missouri, home of Dollar General's, Mexican restaurants, and car dealerships, all of us have a preconceived notion of what this is. So we're like, yeah, bad people. 
bad stuff, like drugs. It just goes to be so heartbreaking to me as to how biblically illiterate a town filled with churches is. You see, we automatically think of other things and other people long before we think first and foremost of ourselves. Jesus told a story in a parable that really summarized two individuals. It was called the story of the prodigal son, and maybe you remember it. And many of you are probably like, yeah, that story is about the prodigal. No, it's not. The prodigal is a part of the story. You see, there was a prodigal who went to his father and did this, rejected his father and all of his ways. It was lawlessness and said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want the inheritance. I am done. I want to live my, my life my way like Frank Sinatra said. I want to do it my way, okay? So he goes and squanders all of his wealth. I mean, ruins his life quicker than he could ever imagine. And then he realizes that my father loves me and he goes back to his father. And when he goes back to his father, he's a long way off. His father runs to him. And then his father throws a party brings the robe and the ring and uh, slaughters the calf. and It's a celebration. Then enters the elder brother. And the elder brother comes stomping in and said, what are you doing? This guy never obeyed. He ruined his life. And now you're celebrating him. I've always been here. I've always obeyed. I've always done everything right. He's made bad choices. He should suffer the consequences because I'm right. And he's wrong. You see, sin is not just when it comes to breaking or doing bad things. That's called sins of commission. There's also sins of omission, doing things we shouldn't do. But you see, there's two types of people in this room. There are the rebellious outright, and then there are the religious rebellious. You see, many of us think that sin is just breaking commandments. But actually, the Bible says that sin is so rampant that you can have a rebellious heart trying to keep the commandments as well. And when we think about the law of God, lawlessness, we probably think of the top ten, right? The Ten Commandments. When God comes to Charlton Heston after he's saved all the people out of Egypt and says, this is how I want you to live because this is who I am. Don't do these things. And if you think primarily that that list is things not to do, to try not to do, don't do these, and if I try not to do them and when I don't do them, then God will love me, that is wrong. Because I want you to think about the law of God like this. Um, a couple summers ago, we spent some time with a family member of ours who has a beachfront home. So we really love that family member. And we hang out and we go down there on a vacation. And we had traveled all day, ate a bunch of fried food and this, that, and the other. And that night, I woke up with a pain in the middle of my chest that could only be described like that scene from the movie Aliens when they burst out of people, right? That's what it felt like. So I was in the fetal position in the bathroom. They rushed me to the ER. They gave me some funny medicine. I was still hurting. They said, hey, we're going to give you an MRI. So we're going to put all this dye in you. It's going to make you feel weird like you peed yourself, hot and sweaty. And, this. and that, that dye almost made me feel worse than anything else. And then they ran me through the MRI machine. They said, it looks like you had a gallbladder attack. Welcome to your 30s. <laughs> like, that's what they should have said, okay? But it looks like you had a gallbladder attack, um, but listen, the MRI only revealed what was wrong. And then after that, then the doctor came in, prescribed me some medicine, and did some things. Listen, the MRI only revealed what was wrong. It didn't heal me. It didn't fix me. The law of God works that way. 
The law of God was not prescribed in such a way as if you do this, then God will love you. What the Bible says is, is that we actually can't do that, but rather it reveals our need for a Savior. So when we think about what is sin and sin is lawlessness, and we've established that, yes, it is breaking God's commands, but it tends to be a bit more than that. And we're going to go layer by layer. And so now, if you thought that we were already in the theological deep end, by the way, you can Google this. This is a study of hermonology, the study of sin, woo, all that great stuff, okay? Now we're going to go in the real deep end. And I need you to lean in because this is going to be a little bit tough to understand, okay? So where we need to go for this is the theologically deep cartoon called Calvin and Hobbes. All right? We're in the deep end of the water here, guys. This is theological in-depth stuff. But a couple years ago, I ran across this comic that taught some serious theology. And in this cartoon in Calvin and Hobbes, it says this. I'm getting nervous about Christmas, Calvin says. You're worried you haven't been good. You see, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition of how, of, what's Santa's definition of good? I mean, how good do you have to be to qualify as good? Well, I haven't killed anybody. See, that's pretty good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I haven't started any wars, and I don't practice cannibalism. <laughs> Wouldn't you say that that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say that I should get lots of presents? But maybe, just maybe, good is more than the absence of bad. Oh, wow. See, that's what worries me. I mean, this is in a cartoon, guys. Come on. But what if good is more than just the absence of bad? Because you see, I think a lot of us probably struggle with primarily doing good things. So when we look at Jesus' genealogy, or we talk about grievous sins, or addictions, or this, that, and the other, we place ourselves in these categories. And what it does is, well, I don't struggle with that. I mean, and those people, it even comes out in our language. The next time you're carrying a conversation, always listen for certain types of words. And anytime somebody says, you know, those kind of people, always lean in and make the conversation real awkward and go, no, please do tell. Do tell about those kind of people. You see, what that is, is that is self-righteous language. You're putting people in your own categories, and you've deemed yourself as the judge. And even if you're a non-believer in here, you have to admit you fall prey to your own standard. Because you ask for equality, but at the same time, those Christians, and how can those people believe that? And actually, what I really think and believe is that a Christian worldview teaches better equality than what you could even offer. Because when we think about this, the Bible says that the good that you even try to do is still stained. For we all have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. If I taught what that meant in the original language, and contextually what that meant, you would be so offended. You'd be like, preacher, how dare you preach the Bible? That'd be crazy. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Now we're going even deeper. But the Bible says that this sin, this lawlessness that dwells in the human heart is so stained that our righteous deeds have flaws in them. That's why there's a problem when it comes to trying to deconstruct everything. 
we need to deconstruct this and the problems here and then the problems always systems and if we can build a utopian society with perfect systems then then everything will be okay but the bible says that you're actually not even being honest with yourself because if sinners build the system then the system will always have error it will always have that but then the bible even goes further you see, a lot of us think that sin are ba is bad things that we do. So if I tell a lie, then I've lied. And therefore, that's bad. But the reality is the Bible's even harsher than that. The Bible says you don't just lie and that makes you a liar. The Bible says that you're a liar. That's why you lie. You know why? Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Listen, I just need to ask a question. If you find yourself pushing back against this and saying, I can't believe that you believe something like that, my question back to you would be, then can you explain to me what's wrong with the world? Because, see, you don't just get to have an answer of what you don't believe in. You also have to provide an answer as well. And when it comes down to it, there's two honest questions and two honest realities. Something is terribly wrong with the world. And we all know it's not supposed to be this way. So what's the solution? What do we say in response to these things? Well, you see, it even goes even further. Because if we were born in sin, I love what the famous philosopher C.S. Lewis said. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. That's why if you go to any bookstore, the largest section is the self-help section because we are addicted to trying to improve ourselves. I mean, the first of the year is coming. I'm going to shed a few pounds. And if I could work on this and improve and improve and improve. You see, um, he's a rebel who must lay down his arms. You see, it's not just this idea that we're broken. It's also this idea that we are hostile to the ways of God. Because you know what I believe the most offensive verse in the Bible is? I believe it's the most offensive verse that, that you have to reckon every other reality from this verse. It's the most authoritative verse, and it's where everything starts. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Because if that's true, and if there is a creator, then there is a creation and there is a standard. And if there is a standard, the question is, do I measure up? And if not, why should I have to submit to that? It's the thing that wells up inside of us, guys. There are over 1,100 chapters in the Bible, and only four chapters are not in the context of sin. Only four. The first two and the last two. The first two, when God creates everything perfect, and then the last two, when he comes back and recreates everything is perfect. So where do we trace this? I mean, I mean, honestly, if we boil this concept down as to what's broken, we know that something's broken in the world, and everybody knows that it's not supposed to be this way. And listen, guys, humanity has tried to offer solutions over and over and over and over and over again. And all I'm submitting and asking is, what if if we were honest about our own bias, took that off the table and asked what the Bible has to say, the Bible would take us to Genesis chapter 3, where God had created everything perfect and our first parents, Adam and Eve. And God said, the whole garden's mine, or the whole garden's yours, this one tree is mine. 
And what this story tells us is that shows us that, that there was choice, right? That God is a God of love. That God wanted Adam and Eve not to participate in that because they loved God and His ways. And by the way, many of us think that the Bible is filled with a lot of rules, a lot of things to not do. Like, see right there, man, God's already saying don't eat of that tree. God's just got a big ego problem, doesn't want people... Well, question. How many other trees were there in the garden? A lot. We don't know. There's no number. Probably a ton, okay? How many trees did God say not to touch? One, which tells me this. Parents, please listen. This is a great insight for you. God's permission far outweighs God's restriction. Well, why am I only focused on what God can't tell me to do? Why am I only focused on what God can't tell me to do? I would submit to you that that's evidence of our rebellious nature, that we are obsessed with what's the not supposed to be. And so the serpent comes along and said to the woman, you will not surely die. Because God said, this is the way that my creation works. And if you step out of that, there's going to be consequences. Death was never a part of God's story. Never. Please hear me. Death was never a part of God's story. That's why when there is tragedy, everybody stands at a graveside and knows it's not supposed to be this way. And I would challenge you again, if you reject the story of Christianity. What hope do you offer someone in that moment? You can't just say what you're against. You also have to have an answer. And everybody knows it's not supposed to be this way. That, and the enemy says that you're not going to die. Lie, lie. Now here it is. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Translation, God is holding out on you. God's holding out on you. That's why whenever I was in student ministry for a number of years and teaching kids about marriage, about uh, sexual identity and all of these things, talking to kids, and honestly, here's what I love about teenagers is they're honest, super honest. They don't have like mortgages and stuff like that to like give up this like identity. Well, I don't ask those questions. Yeah, you do. You just don't ask anybody, okay? Kids just flat out say it. And they would always say like, well, it seems like um, that the stuff that God doesn't want me to do seems to be like, quote-unquote, the most fun or the things that I want to do. Yeah, because now this desire has been placed in us that we think that God's holding out on us. And may I just submit that maybe some of us in here are peeking over the fence at Christianity. Maybe we have a lot of questions, but in the reality is you fear trusting God. You fear trusting God. That's the temptation that was given, and then here it is. And you will be like God. That's it. Everything boils down to that. That humanity at its essence and us as fallen human beings at our core desire to reject God so we ourselves can be God. If you don't believe me, um, I'll let you just volunteer in nursery. Next Sunday, there's a sign-up sheet right out there in the lobby. Um, I, me, me, my, this is, I, like, where, wh who taught that? Where was that at, right? My kids have never seen me come home and just, you know, flail in the floor and go, that's my remote to my wife or anything like that, right? They've never had to learn that innately in them because I, me, mine. So we have to get back and ask the question, what is sin? Sin is the self-absorbed desire to reject God in order to be God. And I would argue and venture to say this, 
that every relationship breakdown in your life, that every problem in the marriage, because I'm not going to apologize, because she always does this, because every time what nobody understands is they don't get me, and this time, this holiday season, that's not coming in my house. And we're not going to do, because this is my way, and this is just who I am. And you just got to get... I, me, my life, my way. And it shows itself in a rebellious way, and it shows itself in a religious, self-righteous way. But the reality is this. Christmas is a crisis because sin is the universal human condition. Merry Christmas, right? We have to understand why we're even seeing, why are we celebrating what we're celebrating? So now we have to ask this question, remember? We can't just state the problem. We have to ask, what's the solution? What's the solution? And we see it right there in the verse. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Name Jesus. Interesting. Mary and Joseph didn't get to do what parents get to do, which is name their kid. You ever thought about that? I mean, very strict instructions. Like an angel appeared and was like, you're not naming the kid. Well, we were thinking about going with Bob. You're not going with Bob. Horrible name. Sorry if your name's Bob. Um, you're, it's Jesus. You're going with Jesus, right? What does that mean? Why? Well, I think there's a great application that we can draw from this to our life. Um, many of us try to name Jesus. A name means that you give an identity to. Many of us try to name Jesus. Well, Jesus, this is my life. These are my plans. This is the plans for my kids. This is the plans for my grandkids. And this is what we're doing. And then after all of those plans that I want, that I think are really good, if you could sprinkle your fairy Jesus stuff on top of that, that would be great. Because I would love for you to be a part of my life, but not really at the heart of my life. I would like to name you. And the reality is, is that you can't. Jesus doesn't work that way. When's the last time anybody tried to negotiate with a king? Doesn't really go well. And maybe if you've been anything like me in a moment in your life, you tried to negotiate with Jesus. Like, okay, if this goes through with me, I'll volunteer at kids' side and I'll come to church for three weeks in a row, or I'll do. And it's a negotiation, is what it is. But the reality is, is there's something about this name. You see, the name Jesus finds its etymology, its Old Testament roots, in the Hebrew word Joshua. Yeshua, which means God saves. And that's it. God saves. I love the way one author put it. The name Jesus is perfect. Salvation is of the Lord. That's the name. That's the meaning of the whole Bible. That's the whole gospel complete. You don't make yourself a Christian. You don't make yourself right with God. Salvation is not of you. Salvation is not of this or that. Salvation is completely of the Lord. You can't make yourself a Christian. You are what you are by grace when you are a Christian. Being a Christian means that you were saved by radical grace. This is the good news. This is what we believe as fellow believers, that Christianity sets itself apart from all the other religions in this. 
That all other religions say that you must climb up the mountain in order to find God, and you do it through your deeds, through your reincarnation, or this, that, and the other, and maybe, just maybe at the end, you will find God at the top of that mountain. But I've come to tell you this, Christianity says that God came down the mountain in Christ to find you. That God pursued you. That God's chased you. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I believe God's chasing you and pursuing you now. You say, well, how do you know that, preacher? Because you're in church. Because you're listening to this. It is the good news of the message. The question is this. Do we have ears to hear? And do we have a heart that is receptive? You see, the good news is this. The solution for a self-absorbed humanity is a self-sacrificing God. This is what makes Christianity separate from Greek mythology, from anything else, is that this God comes down, takes on human flesh, for that He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, that Jesus wept, that He knows, that God knows our condition, but yet without sin. That's why Jesus Christ was not born of the seed from His Father, but rather through the Holy Spirit, that He lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserved, and three days later rose again. That's what separates Jesus. And what we need is we need, listen, a radical love to chase us. A radical love. There's nothing like seeing a God who from all eternity was surrounded by angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty sitting on a throne and all creation singing praises, but yet this God steps off the throne and enters into this earth and gives up hearing, holy, 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 and now hears, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. This God who sat on a throne now was born and laid in a manger. This God who was robed in majesty is now robed in swaddling claws and then would get stripped naked and exposed and shamed on the cross. This God, this humility, this love, this is what changes lives. And this is what we need. This is what we need. That's why in Christianity we say this, the gospel's good news. Listen, it's not good advice. You don't need good advice. You don't give good advice to somebody who's drowning. Kick harder. Here's the thing, Pete. You should have lost a few pounds. You don't give somebody good advice. You jump in the water and you save them. That's the good news. It's not advice. It's good news of what? That God's done something. And do you know why it's good? It's because it doesn't involve you. That's why it's good. That if you were left to your own devices, and that if it was really your job to improve your life, give it a couple years, and you're going to ruin everything. It's good news because God saves us in Christ, rescuing His rebellious creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what this is about. Sin brought death. Jesus brings life. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, transgressed in the garden. And Jesus Christ fulfilled His Father's will in the garden and said, not my will, but yours be done. That He bore the death and the penalty of sin. And three days later, He rose again. And there's a tension there. I leave that decision now with you. Because can you say and can you admit what we teach our kids? 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Martin Luther said that he hated that verse. That and about God's righteousness. He said that it almost seemed like that God had a gavel and every day he woke up that God was banging his gavel of his righteousness and that it pounded his mind every day to remind him he was a sinner until God opened up his mind to the rest of the verse. And we're justified, we're made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen to me, Christmas is a crisis before it's a celebration. That God has come to save us. And in closing, as the band comes up, when you think about God coming to rescue his creation, I want you to think about those first responders. I want you to think about that. I remember whenever I was at the Kennett Country Club and got some training because of the swimming pool that was there, they teach first responders and people who have any CPR training that when you jump into the water when somebody is drowning, one of the things that you have to say and you have to learn is you have to say, don't resist, don't fight this. Because people will fight in such a way that it ends up drowning two people, the rescuer and the victim as well. And so you have to come and say, hey, I'm here to help you, please stop resisting. And then they say, if they keep resisting, you just put them to sleep. Just put them to sleep and then rescue them or do something like that. And I think if you're honest in here today, um, some of you have been resisting. You've been running. I don't know if it's conversations with your mom, with your dad, you know the prayers of your mother, of your grandmother, of your grandfather. You fought it. You've run so far the other way. I was that way. I tried to outrun my mom and daddy's prayers my whole life. And as C.S. Lewis says, the hound of heaven chased me down. And it was the radical love. It was Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. It's always about Jesus. I want you to listen to these words. Westside, would you stand to your feet in closing as we listen to the rescuer's description found in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christmas is a crisis and we needed saving and God did not leave us alone but he sent us Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful for this good news, not good advice. God, I prayed for every marriage, for every human heart in here, whether it's addiction, whether it's self-righteousness, whatever our sinful hearts keep resisting your will and your ways. May the overarching word today through the power of your spirit be stop resisting. just like someone being rescued, may we enjoy the freedom and the grace to know that it's not about us, that it doesn't depend on us, but Jesus Christ is our redemption. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We thank you for this grace and for this good news, and we pray this all in the holy 
and in the precious name of Jesus Christ.